Well, good evening. It is good to be in this pulpit again. And I'm excited about this this 500th anniversary today. Not today, but this year. Um, If you have a copy of the scriptures, you want to grab one from in front of you, 2 Timothy chapter 3 is where we will be reading. And Shane was right. This is the 499th anniversary of the Reformation officially. But we're going to talk tonight about something that this is the 500th anniversary of. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're thinking about sola scriptura tonight. Scripture alone, the God-breathed foundation of our faith. And I'm going to go ahead and read, it says in your bulletin 16 to 17, but I'm going to go ahead and read starting in verse 14, and then I'm going to read through chapter 4, verse 2. So 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 4, 2. This is God's holy word. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Let's look to our God in prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word. It is full of life and truth and power as it reveals Christ to us and your will for us as your church. We pray that tonight you would speak to each one of us, that you would speak to us and teach us and rebuke us and correct us and train us, that you by your Holy Spirit may thoroughly equip us for every good work in your service, for your glory in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church history is one of my passions, and the reason why church history is one of my passions is because uh, it's the history of God's dealing with his people over time. And I find that God doesn't change, and that human nature doesn't change, and so we can learn things from the way that God dealt with his people in the past. The Middle Ages are sometimes known as the Dark Ages, that period of time between the fall of Rome in the year 476 and the dawn of the Reformation in 1517 is often characterized as a time period of ignorance and brutality. Now, much of this characterization is unfair and inaccurate. There was much learning and scholarship and innovation uh, going on in the Middle Ages. There were highlights But it is true that for a thousand years, nearly, the light of the scripture was almost completely removed from the church. How the scriptures were kept from God's people and how they were later restored is a vitally important story. It shows the long struggle and the great sacrifices that have been made to ensure that we would have the Bible in our languages today. The average American household, it's said, 
has nine copies of the Bible. You may have more. I could not tell you how many copies of the Bible we have in our house, uh, but I'm confident that it exceeds 20. Um, Now, it's ironic that in an age when everyone has an average of nine copies of the Bible in their house, there is such rampant biblical illiteracy because having a Bible and reading it appears to be two very different things. Uh, Most Americans cannot name uh, the four Gospels, um, and if they're asked to name the 12 Apostles, they usually start by naming the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but Mark and Luke were not Apostles. So... uh, (laughs) The basic Bible knowledge in our country is at a low, even as our access to the Bible, if you have a phone like I do, it probably has the Bible on it like mine does, and I can literally go on my phone right now and access the Bible in a hundred different languages. Um, But for much of church history, this was not true. The story of how the Bible was uh, taken away and then restored is one that begins in the year 382. And it culminates in many ways with an event that happened 500 years ago this year. Next year, of course, 2017, the official 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg. But what happened this year, 500 years ago this year, 1516, was a very important predecessor. In many ways, it's more important because 1517 would not have happened without 1516. But as I said, our story begins in 382. In 382, uh, a monk by the name of Jerome sat down to write a new translation of the Bible that would later become known as the Vulgate. And Vulgate just means the commonly used translation of the Bible. Now, the irony with what would happen later with this translation of the Bible is that in 382, when Jerome was making his translation, he was making an updated Latin version that would be more easily understood and more clear to the people who spoke Latin. So he was writing it in the language of the people, trying to give them greater access to God's word when he wrote it. This is the the Bible that was used in the churches. Now, Fast forward about 400 years, Christmas Day in the year 800, one of the key figures in the history of the world, Charles the Great, King of the Franks, known in history by his French name, Charlemagne, he was crowned by Pope Leo III as the Holy Roman Emperor. And it was the founding of what would be known as the Holy Roman Empire. Charlemagne controlled most of Western Europe, and like I said, he was one of the key people in all of human history. His empire, if you can imagine this, included most of modern-day Germany and Austria, all of Switzerland, France, Belgium, and the Netherlands, and parts of Italy and Spain. He basically ruled all of Western Europe, with the exception of the British Isles and Spain, which was being controlled by the Muslims at the time. So Charlemagne's influence was enormous for two reasons, really, three reasons. He united all these lands, he reigned for a long time, and he was very committed to education. So he was actually one of the first guys to establish public schools and uh, wanted education for the people. But ironically, he was very committed to the Latin Vulgate being the Bible of the church. And the irony there is he was so committed to the education of the people But the people didn't speak Latin by this time. 
In fact, almost all of the priests had lost their knowledge of Latin. They, they barely knew how to pronounce the things that they were required to read in the Mass. They didn't really understand much of what they were reading. That was the priests. None of the lay people understood Latin at all. So imagine for a minute, you go to church, and the whole service is being conducted with the priest having his back to you. And then he's speaking in a language you don't understand. Blah, 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 blah. And he's doing things that you vaguely have some notion of understanding, but again, you don't get a word of it because it's all in a language you don't speak. And then he turns around with the communion elements, as we would know them, the Mass, but you're not allowed to take them. And then you leave and go home. That was church for hundreds of years. People would come, people would go, people were required to go. If you were excommunicated, you were literally a non-person. You could not enter into legal contracts. You had no rights under the state. And so this was church, absolutely mandatory, enforced by the law, in a foreign language, completely unknown to the people. And Charlemagne, for better or worse, is the single man who is most responsible for the Latin Vulgate being the Bible of the church for hundreds of years. Until a ray of light broke in England in 1372 when a man named John Wycliffe received his doctorate and then in 1374 when he began preaching. Wycliffe confronted the corruption and the abuses in the church. And what was different about him was he did so on the basis of scripture. Wycliffe boldly asserted that the scripture was the supreme authority for the Christian and that the Pope and the church were only a secondary authority and they were subject to the scriptures. And that was a bold move in 1370s. Of course, the Pope didn't like this very much. Neither did the church hierarchy. And so uh, he was condemned by papal bulls, but never formally tried during his lifetime. But there were five papal bulls or church edicts that were uh, enforced against him, and he was called the master of errors. Now, due to some of the politics that were going on in the church and in Europe, uh, and the fact that he was way up in England, he was kind of allowed to stay where he was as long as he stayed in his town and didn't bother anybody else. And so he worked on a translation of the Bible from the Vulgate into English in 1382. This translation was more or less completed and put out the first translation of the Bible into English. Wycliffe had help from several friends in doing so, and today the largest Bible translation ministry in the world is Wycliffe uh, Bible Translation. He died in 1384, and his translation was later updated in 1388 and 1395, and it remained very important. So England and the English language was one of the first languages to have the Bible in their language. Of course, it was Old English. You wouldn't be able to read Wycliffe's Bible today and understand it, but um, he was not just someone who translated the Bible, though. He also taught many of the doctrines that would be held later by Martin Luther and the Reformers, only he taught them 135 years earlier in the late 1300s. 
He wrote against the doctrine of transubstantiation, the idea that the bread and the wine become literally, physically, the body and blood of Christ. He wrote, the bread, while becoming, by virtue of Christ's words, the body of Christ, does not cease to be bread. He challenged indulgences, which is really what Martin Luther's 95 Theses was all about. Um, some people have a misunderstanding of the 95 Theses, and they think that it contains the five solas of the Reformation. Way too early for that. It really was a charge against indulgences. But Luther wasn't the first one to speak out against indulgences. Wycliffe said, it is plain to me that our prelates in granting indulgences do commonly blaspheme the wisdom of God. He repudiated the confessional, saying, private confession was not ordered by Christ and was not used by the apostles. And he reiterated the biblical teaching on faith. Sounding a lot like a reformer, he said, trust wholly in Christ. Rely altogether on his sufferings. Beware of seeking to be justified in any other way than by his righteousness. The church, of course, opposed his translation work. I love what the church had to say about his translation work. It's so ironic. It's thick with irony because they use the word vulgar in here. And the Bible translation they wanted everyone to use was the Vulgate, which was originally translated to be in the common tongue. But this is what the church said about his work. By this translation, the scriptures have become vulgar, and they are more available to laymen and even to women who can read than they were to learned scholars who have a high intelligence. So the pearl of the gospel is scattered and trodden underfoot by swine. In other words, they're saying the lay people in England could now read the scriptures better than the scholars who had to struggle with the Latin and didn't even really understand the Latin, and they said this was a horrible thing. But Wycliffe simply replied, Englishmen learn Christ's law best in English. Moses heard God's law in his own tongue, and so did Christ's apostles. Well, Wycliffe died in 1384, before the final version of his Bible translation work was completed. But he died before the church could actually convict him of heresy. And so the church did a very unusual thing. They actually put him on trial 31 years after his death in the Council of Constance, and he was condemned as a heretic in May 4th, 1415. And then 13 years after that, now 43 years after his death, they dug up his bones and burned them along with all of his books that they could find, and they scattered the ashes along the River Swift that was in the town of uh, Lutterworth, England, where he ministered. <laughs> and what kind of a guy? They dig up his bones 43 years later just to burn them. What would provoke them to need to put this guy on trial 30 years after he was dead? Well, there was a specific reason why they did that. And it was caused by the popularity of a Czech disciple of John Wycliffe, a man named Jan Hus. Jan Hus, or John Hus, as we call him in English, was a very popular preacher in Bohemia, what's now the Czech Republic. He started preaching in the year 1402. He preached against the moral corruption of the priests and monks and bishops. He actually republished a lot of Wycliffe's things in Bohemian, so he would get a lot of Wycliffe's writings and would publish them in the language of his people. He later preached against indulgences and the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. He preached against the papacy. And he preached his sermons in the language of the people 
using vivid illustrations and clear language because Hoos believed that preaching should be both understandable and memorable. And this, of course, was too much for the church to tolerate. The Council of Constance met for a number of years to deal with a number of very difficult issues in the church. One of the issues they had to deal with was the fact that three different men all claimed to be the pope. And so they had to sort that out, and they each had sort of secular powers behind them, and so it was kind of a civil war within Europe over the papacy. So they had to figure that out, and frankly, in the midst of trying to sort out their own mess, they didn't have time or tolerance for this Czech preacher who's a godly man who's exposing their dirty laundry and preaching the true gospel because it was bad for business, frankly. So here's what they did. They knew that Hus was a disciple of John Wycliffe, and so they wanted to be able to try him for being a disciple of a known heretic. But the problem was Wycliffe had never been tried officially by the church and condemned as a heretic. So on May 4th, 1415, they put Wycliffe on trial so they could condemn him as a heretic so that on June 5th, 1415, they could try Jan Hus. And then on July 6th, everything happens a month and a day apart, Jan Hus was burned at the stake. He died singing the Psalms and crying out, Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on us. And 102 years after Jan Hus was burned in Germany, Constance is a city in southern Germany, Martin Luther arose and nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. But something even more important had happened a year earlier, something which made the 95 theses and Luther's understanding of the gospel possible, something that has to do with sola scriptura. So let's turn to our text, and we'll come back to 1516 at the end. We have here 2 Timothy. This is the last letter from the Apostle Paul. He was about to be unjustly executed by Romans, not Roman Catholics, but by the pagan Romans. And they were going to behead him, and he knew that his end was coming. Um, he says, after the section that I read, he says, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. He knows that his time is coming. He writes this letter to his young protege, Timothy, a man he had trained to be a pastor. And he writes, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Paul's language regarding the scripture here in this last section of teaching that we have from the pen of the Apostle Paul is very clear and very strong. Consider what he says. First, he says to Timothy, you have known the scriptures from childhood. Timothy was one of the first church leaders to grow up in the church. He was the son of a believing mother, Eunice. He was the grandson of a believing grandmother, 
Lois. So he's a third generation Christian. And this is about the year 68 that this letter is written. So the church has started in about the year 33, and here it is about uh, 35 years later, and we have this, this man who's grown up in the church and who's pastoring and who has known the scriptures from childhood. This is a covenant child. And the scriptures, which Paul calls the sacred writings, he says are able to make Timothy wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now this is interesting because what scriptures is Paul talking about? What would Timothy have grown up knowing that would make him wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? Gospel of Mark? No, it hadn't been written yet. Luke? Matthew? Romans? Nothing of the New Testament had been written when Timothy was a child growing up. By the year 68, by the time 2 Timothy's written, yeah, we do have several books of the Bible that are probably already in circulation, including probably Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But the scripture that he's talking about that Timothy would have grown up knowing was what we call the Old Testament. But Paul knew that even the Old Testament, if you approach it with faith, will make you wise unto salvation by faith in Christ Jesus. This is why Jesus himself confronted the scribes and Pharisees because they knew the scriptures and had studied them all their lives but had missed the whole point. In John chapter 5, Jesus says to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me and yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. But unlike the scribes and Pharisees, Timothy did not miss the point of the Bible. He knew that the scriptures pointed him to Jesus Christ, and so he was made wise for salvation. And then Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Now, your translation might say, given by inspiration of God, or inspired by God, or perhaps God-breathed. I think God-breathed is the best literal translation of the Greek word, which literally God-breathed. God himself breathed out the scriptures. That's what Paul's saying. All scripture is breathed out by God. Even though they came through men, even though Moses wrote the Pentateuch and David wrote the Psalms and Solomon wrote Proverbs, they were still the very word of God. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that the human authors were detached from the process, that their brains went into neutral and they just sort of went into a trance and their hands just moved across the page. No, there's evidence that they did research, that they conducted interviews, that they compiled sources, that they worked hard, and that the writing reflects their writing style. The style of John is very different from the style of Luke. All Greek students love the Gospel of John and wring their hands when they come to the Gospel of Luke because they're very different. But someone once likened it to a stained glass window. God had a picture that he wanted to show us of Jesus. And so he picked Moses and Samuel and David, and Solomon, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Peter, and Paul, and Matthew, and Mark, and Luke. And he picks all of them and puts them together so that through each one's unique coloring, each one's unique personality, and gifts, and background, and research, the light of God would shine through, and we would get exactly what God intended us to see. It is the very word of God given through human men. Now, Scripture being breathed out by God is not just divine in its origin, but it's also very useful. Paul says it's profitable. 
It's profitable for four things, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Teaching, didactics, instruction. We're ignorant. We don't know, and we need to know. And so God tells us what we need to know in his word. Everything we know about the nature of God and reality and creation and fall and redemption and the person and work of Christ and the origin and order of our salvation, about the church, about missions, all of it comes from the scriptures. It is first a book of teaching. And if we will not go with an open mind to learn, then we're not getting the first profit from it. Scripture was not given for us to make stacks of cards of promises that we could kind of pull out in our time of need. It was given to teach us, to teach us about God and teach us about ourselves. The second thing it does is it reproves us. It's given for reproof, that is for rebuke, for censure, for chastisement, because not only are we ignorant, but we are prone to wander. We're wayward. We get off track. We do stupid things. We act selfishly. We act sinfully. And we need sometimes just a slap across the face. And sometimes that's exactly what the Bible does. We're being prideful, and we sit down, and the Scripture tells us that pride comes before destruction. We're being angry, and we're lacking self-control, and we go to Proverbs, and Proverbs tells us about the angry man who is out of control, and the man who's lacking self-control is like a city with the walls torn down. We need that rebuke, that just that cup of cold water splash in our face to say, wake up. You are in sin, and your sin is destroying you and those around you. But that's not all it does. It also offers correction. Correction is a restoration to an upright state or the improvement of our character. Once Scripture gets our attention with a rebuke, it directs us back to the right path of obedience. And then finally, training in righteousness. We need to be trained and built up so that we are able to stay on the path of righteousness and not go astray. So if you put these four together, you know, there's, there's a path of righteousness that we're to walk in. It's in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and obedience to the word of God. And scripture first shows us where that path is and what it looks like. That's teaching, right? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. He is your righteousness. He is your peace. He's your access to God. This is the way you should go. Walk in it. So we start walking in it, but we go astray. What do we need when we go astray? We need to be told, hey, you're off the path. And then we need to be told, hey, there's the path over there. Get back on it. So that's rebuke and that's correction. And then we need training so that we learn to stay on that path. And that's what Scripture does for us. Scripture does all four of those things when we come to it in faith, looking for the Lord to teach us. And then finally, Paul tells Timothy that his ministry as a pastor consists of one main thing, which he very solemnly charges him to do, preach the word. He tells him to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, to rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. In season means when everyone is listening and responding and growing and things are going well, out of season means when people aren't listening so well and responding and growing and things aren't going so well. Both Wycliffe and Hoos had in season and out of season times. They had times when everything was going really well and people were really responding to the message and then there were times when they were facing even fierce opposition. But they had to stay consistent and they did. 
Notice that Paul tells Timothy to do the same kinds of things in his preaching that the scriptures do in the life of a believer. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. A pastor cannot hold back from saying the hard things scripture says because he needs to let the word of God reprove and rebuke the people of God, including himself. But he must also exhort, which is to build up and to encourage, where scripture builds up and encourages. That's part of that training in righteousness. And as he does so, he must do everything with complete patience and teaching, patiently instructing in everything the scriptures teach. Basically, Paul is saying to Timothy, let the word do its work in the lives of your people. Let it do all of its work. Where it is rebuking, let it rebuke. Where it is correcting, let it correct. Where it is exhorting or encouraging, let it exhort and encourage. Where it is instructing, let it instruct. Let the word loose on your people, is what he's telling Timothy. The ministry of a pastor must be the ministry of the word if our churches are going to be churches shaped by the word. A church built on the word of God will be strong, faithful, and fruitful. A church built on men's ingenious ideas will be weak, weak, fractured, ineffective, and short-lived. And this brings us back to Reformation church history. The Reformation, more than anything else, marks a period of time when the word of God was unleashed on the church, was let loose to do its work in the lives of the people. More than anything else, I think more than anything else, the Reformation was consistently marked by the preaching of the word and the teaching of the word to the people of God. After being lost in obscurity and buried under church tradition and corruption, and layers of Latin that no one understood, this was a period of time when the word of God was restored, elevated, preached, taught, and lived by the church for the first time in a widespread way in many centuries. And there were two key developments that allowed this to be possible. The first was the inventing of the printing press. Why is Martin Luther the father of the Reformation and not John Wycliffe? In many ways, because John Wycliffe was about 100 years too early for his work to be distributed widely by the printing press. Between 1452 and 1455, Johann Gutenberg printed the first books on his new printing press. It was 200 copies of the two-volume Gutenberg Bible. The printing press came about 40 years too late to spread the writings of John Wycliffe and Jan Hus before they were condemned and burned. Thankfully, copies of their writings did survive and were later printed and distributed. But the second development after the printing press is what happened 500 years ago. And it may not be that exciting to you, but in 1516, the Dutch scholar Erasmus, who is probably responsible for my favorite quote in all of history. Sean Troutman probably knows this quote. Erasmus said very famously, when I get a little money, I buy books. If I have any left over, I buy food and drink. <laughs> but Erasmus was a scholar. He was a Dutch scholar, so he's close to my heart. And uh, in 1516, what did he do? He compiled the first Greek New Testament to be printed in the world. He also made a fresh translation from the Greek into the Latin. 
But it was that Greek New Testament that was so key because it reached Martin Luther very quickly because of that printing press that Gutenberg had invented. And when Luther got the Greek New Testament, the word of God was opened to him. We do believe that the Bible is inerrant as it was originally inspired in Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament. And there are things that you see in the Greek that, is, that are, can be life-changing. And there are two in particular. And I know we're, it's a little late, but I'll give you these two very quickly. One, in Matthew 4, when Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The Latin Vulgate had translated repent as do penance. Which is different, because the Greek word for repent indicates a change of mind and heart and life. When Luther saw that for the first time, it changed the whole way he thought about the word repentance and the idea of repentance. Repentance is not the doing of works to atone for sin, but the conversion of the soul to God. This change of understanding was so important for Luther that the very first of his 95 theses that he posted the next year said this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire lives of believers to be one of repentance. Not of doing penance, but of having your heart and mind and life transformed by God. The second one is in Romans 1.16. Go ahead and turn there if you have your Bibles open still. Romans 1.16, Paul says very famously, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the justice of God is revealed. Is that what your translation says? It doesn't, does it? It says the righteousness of God is revealed, but the Latin Vulgate used the word justice, justice. And so when Luther, Luther at this time was actually teaching through Romans, he was a theology professor at the University of Wittenberg, he was teaching through Romans, and he was so frustrated because he didn't understand. He knew that this, was, this is basically Paul's thesis statement for the book of Romans. Okay, I'm an English teacher, and so I like thesis statements. And like all good thesis statements, it comes at the end of his introduction. So he writes this thesis statement, and, and, Paul, and, and Luther knew this is Paul's statement for the book of Romans about the gospel, and he's saying it's good news, it's the power of God for salvation, because it's the revelation of the justice of God. How is that good news? The justice of God is, condemns me. How is that good news? But when he saw it in the Greek, he knew that it was the righteousness of God. And he could also see that it was a righteousness of God that is revealed from faith for faith. And the way that is even written, the righteous ones shall live by faith. He realized that this is a righteousness not by which God himself is righteous, but is a righteousness which God gives and is received by faith so that the righteous may live by faith. 
And this is how R.C. Sproul explains it. He says, and this was the moment of awakening for Luther. He said, you mean here Paul is not talking about the righteousness by which God himself is righteous, but a righteousness that God gives freely by his grace to people who don't have righteousness of their own. It's what he called a justitia alienum, an alien righteousness, a righteousness that properly belongs to someone else. It is a righteousness that is extra nos, that is outside of us. Namely, it is the righteousness of Christ. And Luther said this, When I discovered that, I was born again of the Holy Ghost, and the doors of paradise swung open, and I walked through. You see how important Erasmus's Greek New Testament was? It saved Luther by showing him what repentance was, And what righteousness by faith was, it gave Luther the gospel that he was then able to take to the world and start the Reformation. The Bible matters. This is what God has given us, this treasure that is full of truth, that is full of Christ, that is the gospel. It makes us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It made Luther wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It is God's means of teaching us, of reproving us, of correcting us, of training us in righteousness so that we may be equipped for every good work. So on this 500th anniversary of the printing of that first Greek New Testament, Let's not neglect the 20 Bibles that we have laying around our house. Let's take this word and read it, study it, believe it, obey it, teach it, and preach it. It's God's book. It's the only sure and infallible guide for our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your hand at work in history. We thank you for the time in which we live when we have such ready and available access to your word in our language. We can read and we can study and we can understand and we can grow in our knowledge of you. Write your word upon our hearts and lead us in paths of righteousness through your word. For your name's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.